I was adorable once, young and full of hope. And now, look at me. I'm this short, fat, insecure, middle-aged thing. I made you short? Hello and welcome. Welcome and hello. This is Wait, You Haven't Seen. It's a show where we talk about movies and specifically a movie at least one of us has never seen before. I'm your host Travis, aka TV's Travis. This is episode number 133 and our movie this week was 1996 Robin Williams and Nathan Lane comedy The Birdcage. And joining me to talk about it, because he hadn't seen it before, is Marcus from the Haven't Seen It podcast. What the hell is that about? Haven't Seen It podcast. Come on now. Uh, first of all, hi. Uh, hi. Second of all, um, I have no idea what it's about, uh, <laughs> but it probably is something maybe similar to the corner that you're currently residing on. Uh, I'm not sure. Yeah, um, the idea sounds familiar to me. I'm not sure why, but no, I honestly, uh, I love the fact that there are other podcasts doing this same idea, which is showing movies to more people because that's what I love to do. I love to show people movies and so I just like the fact that you're doing a very similar thing. There's look, there's a million and one podcasts out there and a ton of them on talking movies. It's not like it's, uh, anyone owns the idea. I think there's plenty of room for everybody. And I thought it was, I, I thought this was a cool, a cool opportunity to have you on to talk about a movie that you hadn't seen. Yeah, totally. And it is one of those things too, where, I like the premise of somebody coming in cold every week because you hear a lot of people talk on podcasts. And as you said, there is room for everybody. And it's great that everyone is doing their own thing and and letting their flag fly. But a lot of the time it does feel like um, people are either needlessly piling onto movies or kind of just sort of heaping praise on, mm-hmm. on things that they already know yeah. what the other person's opinion is of. And, and so then it just kind of becomes this circular same kind of here's why we like this mm-hmm. the top five reasons and all that. So someone going in cold every week, I, I really enjoy because you just have no idea absolutely what yeah. somebody's gonna think and that's where that's where the, the conversation happens and and with this movie i'm so excited to talk about it because i had a couple of snapshots in my head um about the birdcage mm-hmm. but man getting a chance to watch it last night i i was i was surprised i was moved i was uh, just reduced to laughter it was it was great so um def- definitely ready to to get this ball rolling excellent and yes i i agree with you 100% the great thing about bringing somebody in whether it's my guest or in some cases it's me that hasn't seen the movie and seeing something for the first time you get a different perspective i have a history with this movie i remember seeing it it came out in 1996 i didn't see it in theaters but i probably saw it less than a year later whenever it hit home video uh, because I grew up a huge Robin Williams fan. I loved Robin Williams. I loved his voice work in things like Fern Gully and Aladdin. I loved him in um, 
you know, movies like uh, Hook, I really liked when I was a kid. And um, I remember seeing Patch Adams when I was younger and Jack. And I saw Good Morning Vietnam when I was in eighth grade in my history class. Uh, and then somebody showed me some of his early stand-up. Um, and this was before I hadn't, I had heard of, and I knew of Mork and Mindy, but it was sort of just outside my kind of circle of shows that I watched. It was just old enough that I didn't watch it when it was on the air. And I didn't quite care about Nick at night stuff at the time, um, to really watch that. But I just, I knew who Robin Williams was and I loved him. So then I saw this movie and I'm going to have a very different opinion based on 25 years of, of knowing this movie and loving this movie then you will watching it for the first time. That doesn't mean you won't enjoy it because it sounds like you did have a good time with it, but you're going to look at things a lot differently than I do. So I love that. It, it feeds this conversation so well. Um, I have a question for you, though. Is how, how is it that you went 25 years not seeing this movie? Are you, are you a Robin Williams fan, I guess would be the first question, and, or what would be the – how did this one slip by you? Well, again, I to read it, to reiterate, I did have a couple of snapshots in my head of this mm -hmm. movie, and I feel like I did catch it at some point, but I completely forgot about it. Okay. Like, I, I had absolutely no real expectation going in other than I knew it was a comedy that was, you know, centered around gay culture and all of that, but... um. To answer the Robin Williams question, I am a fan, but my fandom does come with a couple of caveats. Okay. And it, it, as you sketched out, you know, he has such a huge body of work and he is in a lot of movies where it's the Robin Williams show. It's the mm -hmm. Robin Williams doing improv, trying to burn the entire set to the ground right. with every take um those ones i tend to like a little bit less mm -hmm. however when he is a able to either be tamed or 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 somehow subdued whether, whether mm -hmm. it's by you know the the screenwriters and director of goodwill hunting or by mike nichols in this movie Mm -hmm. He's such a wonderful actor and he's got such an expressive and, and uh, kind of behind the eyes quality to him that sometimes I feel like gets lost when he is just trying to light the film that's going through the camera on fire. <laughs> yes. I, <laughs> so, but I totally get that. But I love him in this movie. He's so subdued. And, and I, and I read that, one of the rules that Mike Nichols, the director, set up for for Williams and Nathan Lane, who both are huge improvisers mm -hmm. and traffic in improvisation a lot. His rule was that you have to do it by the book at least once before yes. you start to improvise. And I, I, I love that bit of trivia because I can just imagine both of them nearly bursting at the seams, just <laughs> yeah. ready to, to, to fly with this material. But, but yeah, I, I definitely like Robin, Robin Williams a lot. Um, but it, you know, my mileage does kind of vary depending on the project. Sure. I get that. I mean, 
he can do the thing with Robin Williams was he was such a good dramatic actor. He was also like the ultimate clown and it was finding that balance between those. He, because look, one of the movies that makes me cry probably harder than just about anything is what dreams may come. That movie's rough. And a lot of it is his performance in it. He finds a balance in this between the manic madcap uh, improvisation stuff that he is good at doing that I think he may have been, I almost think Good Morning Vietnam is some of his best. Like the segments where he's on the radio are just some of the best. You can tell it was just turn the camera on, let Robin Williams do his thing, and we'll fix it in post type of deal. We'll just we'll we'll yeah. pick and choose what we can what we can go with. Um, he has a he gets he doesn't quite go to that level in this, but he gets to play a little bit. But he's mostly the straight man, which is is interesting because originally he was cast as Albert, and it was going to be Steve Martin as Armand and uh, Robin Williams as Albert. Now, I I adore this movie as it is, and I don't want to change anything about it but I am very curious to go to the alternate universe where that movie got made just to see that, to see Steve Martin's take on Armin Goldman and how he would do it. Because it would be, <laughs> it would be very different from Robin Williams. It really would be. And not in a bad way at all. Uh, so that's, that's curious for me. But, but Williams is so good at then finding that moment to, to tug at the heartstrings. And... You know, there was there was a series of movies that would come out mostly um, in the '90s for quite a while. Uh, I mentioned like Patch Adams, um, Jack, and a few of uh, Mrs. Doubtfire. They were sort of the Robin Williams formula, which was they would be a comedy, but they had heart at the base of them, and there would always be that moment, those scenes that uh, that were I don't want to call them Oscar bait, but they were kind of the okay. Now here's the moment where we're going to get emotional and you're going to feel sad for this character or whatnot. This movie sort of has that, but kind of not. Like, it doesn't quite fall into that Robin Williams, the the formula of his movies. Yet it has a moment in it that I was when I was watching this last night to, to prep for the show, had me nearly start tearing up and getting emotional. He's so good at that. And I think that some people tend to forget how good of an actor he could be when he wanted to, when he didn't just have to go crazy. And like you said, just try to light everything on fire with his kinetic energy, which he no, could also totally. <laughs> and yeah, Mrs. Doubtfire is a perfect example of the capital letters, Robin Williams formula, because mm -hmm. as you said, you know, there are the requisite tug at the heartstrings moment in that, but there is literally a scene toward the beginning of Mrs. Doubtfire where he's just like, I do voices. <laughs> yeah, and, and it's just jump cut after jump cut of him doing And smash characters. cut to just him basically on The Tonight Show. And it's stuff like that that I agree. It, it does some... some it, it, people can kind of lose the plot um, with how good he can be as a dramatic actor because he kind of... He can't not perform for anyone and i and i mean perform in the in the most you know I, I don't know what the word is just robin williamsy way possible uh for people and and when i say he's subdued in this movie that's not to say 
that it's a nothing part because oh, it's no. very it, it's very much not and he does have moments where he does carry the comedy it's mm-hmm. just that it's it's directed um and played in such a smart way where he he knows that like letting nathan lane cook here mm-hmm. is the right move and yes. oh travis does he cook <laughs> nathan <laughs> so this this wasn't nathan lane's first movie obviously he'd been around for years prior to this and he'd been on broadway forever um he had been timon in the lion king just a couple of years earlier oh that's right yeah. Uh, but this was kind of the breakout role because while Timon was arguably seen by more people and his voice would be associated with that, this is his face on screen and center stage in this movie. And this was kind of that breakout Nathan Lane role. He's so good in this throughout the whole thing. And what I love about it is Albert is such a zany character that should like on paper, if if I'm telling you who this character is and you've never seen the movie before, it should not work. It should come off as just way over the top and too much and not realistic at all. But Al- but Nathan Lane puts a humanity into Albert that even though Albert is way over dramatic and flips to, to a 10 on the drama scale immediately every time something happens, he's such a, a genuine person at the core of it. And that's really what carries it. And then the relationship between him and Armand feels real. And especially that moment where they're sitting on the bench and he pulls out the palimony agreement. That was the moment that had me getting emotional. Um, and because it's just, you've got like, Albert isn't flipping out and getting all dramatic anymore. And Armand is, he's just like, look, you are who I want to be with. I don't really care about any of this other stuff but he's so torn because he wants to help his son at the same time. And it's his son. And so he's trying to do everything for him, but he doesn't want to lose Albert in the process. And then that realization on Albert's face, when he's reading the palimony agreement, he's like, wait, this says I get to give you half of everything I own. Who owns it now? And he's like, you do. Albert owned everything as it was like Armand had set that up for him. Basically as I, I love that it is such a great moment. And those two actors together, just such great chemistry and and works so well together. But I I don't know, it's just Nathan Lane as great as Robin Williams is and as good as he is in this movie, I feel like Nathan Lane almost outshines him. Yeah, yeah. I agree. And I think Armand's not only torn between Albert and wanting to help his son, he's also torn between his conflicting feelings for Albert because he is so hysterical. He he's got, there's a, it reminded the performance a little bit reminded me of like whatever Tom Holch is doing in Mozart or in Amadeus, excuse me, with, with, with the laugh and Mm -hmm. and just that kind of hair trigger kick, like everything is on 11 and yet, Armin also has to contend with the fact that he's ashamed of Albert and he's embarrassed by him. And yet at the same time, and the scene on the bench really hammers this home. He cannot pretend to himself 
that he doesn't love this man at the mm-hmm. end of the day. This man who, I mean, this guy's walking around wearing a stunning array of cocktail napkins and tablecloths. <laughs> like it, this, I mean, everything about this character, you're right. It shouldn't work. And it, it's kind of, it, it's sort of sitcom energy mm-hmm. in that, in that very, um, flamboyant way but i'm i'm with you like i just instantly found nathan lane's performance to be hilarious but i would wonder i wonder how many people had to sort of be won over by him um because at the end of the day again he his humanity shines through because you realize as embarrassing as he he might act everybody tosses him aside and mm-hmm. says well how, like so much of this movie is about hiding him yes and and just in various ways and yeah i don't i don't know um if if we want to talk about like what this movie is about at, at a certain point but yeah like those two characters are are definitely the key in a movie that um i, I was just so delighted by from start to finish. Yeah. And, and the interesting thing there is that so much of this movie is about hiding Albert, but not talking to Albert. Like he has a, a say in the matter. And it's more about like, there's the, there's this thing going on with Val and Armin Val being Armin's son, um, where they are kind of conspiring to set up a scene and not include Albert in it. And I think had they just talked to Albert in the beginning, a lot of the kind of sitcom-y moments or the, the you know, mistaken identity, or not even mistaken identity, but like mistaken... The, the, the misunderstanding yes. or all that stuff. All, yeah. all that stuff could have been mitigated by just talking to Albert and saying, look, this girl's parents happen to be a conservative senator. Because I think that had they approached Albert the right way, it would have all been taken care of. Now we wouldn't have had a movie and it wouldn't have been and it. Whatever movie we had wouldn't have been very interesting, but also it kind of speaks to what you were saying, which is Armin is somewhat ashamed of Albert, but, but also not like he loves Albert and he doesn't want Albert to change, but he understands that Albert to people outside of the South beach club scene is too much. And then knowing, knowing that this conservative Senator and his daughter and these, you know, conservative right-wing people are coming down here. It's almost like he knows there's no way to broach that subject to Albert in the amount of time that they have for it to work. So instead of doing that, he just says, well, we'll just figure it out without him. And then that leads to the misunderstandings and Albert gets upset at every turn because he does, he goes to 11 on drama right away. It's from zero drama to I'm going to, you know, I'm taking my toothbrush and heading to the cemetery. Like that, uh, just yeah. on, a, on a flip. It's in, it, it, in, that's what, you know, obviously that feeds into the comedy. Um, and it has one of my favorite lines in the movie, which is you're taking your toothbrush. How Egyptian. Like, <laughs> it's just so good. But, but if they had, if they had just, if Val had come to Armand, initially and treated Albert the way he treats him at the end of the movie from the start, 
the whole thing could have been smoothed over right away. But everyone was so afraid to treat Albert like a normal person when all Albert wants to do is help. And in the end, he's the reason everything works. That's just what I was going to say, which is had they treated him like a human being, though, we might not have gotten the brilliance of of Albert in drag posing as Armand's wife, because there there is a he he nails all of the sort of bit by bit talking points that a conservative uptight just clueless politician played by gene hackman would want to hear Mm -hmm. because that's the language that the kevin keely character understands he understands sound bites he understands things that can be reduced to a 10 second shouting match on cnn that's Mm -hmm. what he gets and when Albert waltzes in in drag, you know, dressed like, I don't know, Margaret Thatcher or something and says exactly what he knows this dude wants and needs to hear mm-hmm. from the people who are ostensibly going to be in his life because he's giving his daughter away to, to merit or to, to Val. Yep. Um, it, there's a defiance to... Nathan Lane's and Albert's performance when he does that, because there's kind of like a little wink and a nod, like, Oh, you, you thought that I didn't understand like what this was really about. Like you Mm -hmm. thought that Mm -hmm. I, that I couldn't absolutely nail this kind of thing. If given the chance, well, I'll show you and I'm not even going to wait for your permission anymore. And I'm not going to be hiding in a broom closet anymore. Right. So, you know, maybe I I don't know if, but, but you're right though. I mean, the, the, the the Val character, like I was appalled by this guy. (laughs) Like, well, this is such, this is such a, like a, a, mean thing to do to somebody it is it is and i think part of what makes val as a character work is the fact that he's supposed to be 20 years old but he's played by somebody who's 27 <laughs> like him so dan futterman as a 20 year old and Callista flockhart as an 18 year old i didn't buy when i first saw the movie and this was pre ally mcbeal but Callista flockhart was 30 years old when this movie was made and she's supposed to be playing yeah. 18. Like, I never bought that. But the fact that, like, Val doesn't come off as a 20-year-old, which makes it difficult to wrap your head around the fact that he's just dumb and doesn't, like, he's college-educated, but he doesn't understand people well enough yet at 20 to really know how to work with Albert. But he sort of, like, they're, they're supposed, they're, there almost feels like there was an arc written into it, a, an early draft of the script with Val where he kind of comes to realization that Albert um, is a lot better than and smarter than he gives him credit for uh, that just sort of got forgotten. Because one of the things about this movie that I really like, and comedy is, comedy is always tricky to show somebody for the first time because comedy is so subjective. Um, oh, yeah. But also what can make watching a comedy difficult is that, especially an older comedy, is how well do the jokes age? A comedy like this 
the reason that 25 years later I can still watch it and still legitimately laugh at stuff and you can see it for the first time and legitimately laugh at bits is that the humor doesn't punch down. Albert and Agador uh, are two characters who are played for laughs throughout the entirety of the movie, but they are not a punchline. I mean, there's moments with Agador. Hank Azaria as Agador, by the way, is phenomenal. He just nails it. He plays that character so perfectly. But what I love about it is while he's played for laughs, at the same time, Agador is really smart and really on it. I mean, little things like the Pirin tablets, like that joke right at the beginning. The Pirin tablets, oh, it's just aspirin with the A and the S scraped off. It's like, that's genius. I know. You know, it's he, he, like, Agador is not dumb. Agador is not useless. Agador is not a punchline. He just is zany and crazy. And so he can put, he can create funny situations like falling down because he's wearing shoes that are three (laughs) sizes too big. Like, but I love that. I like taking a character like that and not making them a punchline because then. 25 years later, that's still funny because it's not hurtful. It's not mean-spirited. Well, in the instances where maybe Albert or Agador are punchlines, they're only briefly punchlines. Like, for, for every butt of the joke, you know, as you mentioned, Agador wearing shoes, which I rewound several times <laughs> as he trips over the rug. This was just an insane moment of physical comedy really by Hank Azaria. Um, the instant you start to think like, is this too much? Is this aging? Well, how much of this is not making it to 2021 and our perspective on gay culture uh, unscathed. Mm-hmm. It, they're instantly kind of paid off quickly yes. afterwards where it, the Pirin tablet, perfect example. It's like Agador understands psychology. Yeah. Like absolutely. he knows he, he understands like who, who the people that he's around and yeah. So I actually wanted to back up quickly and, and ask you though, sure. like when you first saw this, mm-hmm. Like, well, first of all, how many times have you seen this over the years? And has your opinion on the um, perspective on gay culture, has that changed at all the more you've watched this movie? It has in the sense that my overall perspective evolved as I got older and was just able to meet more people and understand like it is not I it is not a culture that I can speak for so I can't sit here and say like this movie represents gay culture well because it's not my culture to represent however in conversations that I have had over the years almost everyone universally that I have spoken to says that it does and um, Amy in the chat is even saying that this movie could take place right now easily. And yes, I do believe that. And I think that's part of why it works and it has aged well is because not only are the representations not, again, they're not punchlines, they're not punching down. The humor in the movie is, is not mean-spirited. 
even when it's making fun of somebody like Agador in a moment where he falls, you know, uh, it, it, it doesn't, it's not mean spirited. So my, my feelings or my thoughts on the, the gay culture in the film haven't changed as far as like, do I think it was okay then and it's not okay now or vice versa? It's more of just as I have evolved as a person over the years and like my viewings of other people, I never, I never looked at this and laughed because, Oh, that's a funny joke. Cause he's gay. No, I laughed at it because I'm like, that's a funny joke because it's ridiculous to think that, um, you know, it, 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 you're going to be able to just take the art out of a house and change a person. And right. Or, you know, the, what's funny about the joke isn't that, uh, you know, Armand is gay. It's that he's holding a statue by the penis as he's looking for something else in the credenza. Like that's the, the, the funny part of that. So I can't say that my perspective has changed so much as I've just come to appreciate the humor for what it is more as I've gotten older and been able to uh, just meet and and learn more about people. Gotcha. That makes sense. I, I think, and you know, comedy is notoriously subjective and it's one of the main art forms that almost never ages well. Not, right. not, not in the, oh, this is really offensive now and it wasn't, 20 years ago since but just in the like i don't get the references or people mm-hmm. thought that, that this sentence structure or that this setup punchline structure was really funny in a way then that just doesn't hold up now with how comedy has evolved but i was also curious to see if this would hold up as a movie concept because i did I did, you know, I, I'd heard bits and pieces mm-hmm. about what this movie was over the years. And, and I'd certainly been prodded on at least one or two occasions to see it. Mm-hmm. But conceptually, uh, another movie that I, I rewatched recently was One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest. Okay. And not going to throw shade at that movie at all. It's a great movie. It deserves its reputation, all of that. But it is kind of weird to watch that movie in 2021 and realize that having mental health advocacy as the main subject of your movie in 1975 was just a way more groundbreaking act than Mm -hmm. it would be now. And so it, it kind of, it, it's just one of those things that was hard to try to put yourself back in the time that it came out. It's just not something that that we can do, especially, you know, if you obviously weren't alive or I wasn't either, but I, I just mean, and so filtering that through the kind of gay culture lens and absurdism is absurdism. Mm-hmm. sexual orientation be damned right but um yeah i i i i think that and you know i i'm not i'm not going to speak for for people either but it, just as jokes and as um as, as far as this stuff goes like it just it played really well it really did like there weren't really any moments that i can recall 
cringing except for the ones that are supposed to make you cringe because they're so uncomfortable and yes. so based on misunderstanding and and that whole rhythm um but but yeah i don't know uh like i don't know where where you wanted to to go from here but uh, well this... I, I yeah i will say on that kind of on that subject or on that topic is the thing with this movie that i think works really well is that it is the, you know, it is sort of, it's not, instead of being a fish out of water, it's we're going to bring somebody into our world that's vastly different from it, and we need to sort of change things around. But it doesn't have to be, like, it's, the, the humor is centered around the fact that it's a Christian conservative family coming to have dinner with the gay couple that own a drag club because their kids want to get married and the misunderstandings that can come out of that. But you could, you could easily change either of those conditions and still be able to make a movie with the same plot and similar types of humor. The jokes aren't going to be identical, but the ideas behind it are going to be the same. And so I think that's part of what makes it work is it's sort of got this universal undertone to it where it's like, it doesn't have to be defined by the fact that, that Robin Williams and Nathan Lane are playing a gay couple. It's the fact that they are playing a couple that is so different from the people that are coming in and they have to try to somehow make those people feel comfortable in the situation that they're coming into, which would not work if they just acted like themselves. So they have to change who they are, but both of them are comfortable with who they are and they don't want to change that. So I think that's kind of what it works. Amy also brings up a good point, which is the story for this movie has not changed since the play that it was based on was written in 1973, which is mm. saying a lot about our culture and uh, probably not great things. The fact that we're still dealing with this 50 years after this story was originally written. Um, but, you know, it, I think at its heart, that's what makes it work is the fact that you can you could set this same idea in a number of different places or a number of different settings and it still work. And so that the heart of the movie is somewhat universal. Um, I do think that the way that they set this and the way that it works, the fact that it is, uh, again, like I've been saying, not punching down and it's, and it's got a heart to it. Um, that's really great. That makes it something that anybody can watch and take something from. And if you don't go into it with a preconceived notion, I think you get a lot out of it too. Sure. And it, it's also that it would be one thing if this movie was about deceiving Christian conservatives and the deception actually worked full force. Mm -hmm. And, and that was, I think that would leave much more of a sour taste, at least in my mouth. Uh, but the, the heart that, that you might be speaking of and don't let me put words in your mouth, but it's that the deception doesn't work and the truth finally comes out and they all walk out of that club together mm -hmm. and in, in various states of, you know, undress and drag and, you know, swapping outfits and all of that. But I, I also think that, even though I, I agree with, you know, your characterization of uh, 
what what are these two radically opposed worldviews that we can put in this home and see what happens over uh, a dinner they're also similar in ways too. like gene hackman and and the diane weiss character his wife like mm-hmm. they're complete sort of hysterically self-centered drama queens too oh absolutely it's just it's just that their focus is different mm-hmm. and so I, I don't know if that I, I, you know what what the intention was with that and i don't know how much of that is the performances versus how you know the characters are written but like there, there's some gene hackman stuff in this movie that that's very that's very over the top and, oh, yeah. and and petty and and small you know in in a in a similar way that you know albert flies off the handle too so i, yep. I don't know what what the what the intended synchronicity was there but i feel like that really worked too like it's not just that the gene hackman character is a conservative christian he's this guy he's this yep. specific guy who is obsessed with his career and obsessed with appearances and mm-hmm. and and you know thinking that he is you know five moves ahead of whatever his imagined opposition is in his mind but in reality he's just missing everything in front of him yeah and and so the hijinks ensue on multiple occasions occasions with that dynamic too i feel like absolutely and i'm really glad that you brought that up because we haven't talked about gene hackman enough and how good he is number one gene hackman another one of those that he's in a movie i'm watching the movie i love gene hackman in so many different things but you picked up on that and it's great because yes he kevin and louise keely are not that different from armin and Albert. The difference is just where they lie on the political spectrum, but like their personalities are, are not this vastly like diametrically opposed thing. They're sort of the same pack. They're, they're the same or similar people in a different package. And you're right. Ke- Kevin Keeley is just obsessed with his image with, the, is obsessed with his career and does fly off the handle too much. I love the moment where he's just like, Oh, best Johnson is an insensitive cow. Like, this person that was supposed to be his friend and he's just thrown her under the bus immediately because it's, it suits him in that moment. And I love that. And, and Louise doesn't get enough credit. I think, I don't think she gets lost. Like Diane Weiss's character doesn't get lost so much as like, it's just tough to stand out in this Gene Hackman, Robin Williams, Nathan Lane. And then you got supporting characters like Hank Azaria. Um, but her character gets those moments that are genuinely funny too. Her whole, like somebody has to like me best moment is great because that's such an Albert thing to, to kind of do like that. That is like the, the, the toned down version of how Albert would be hysterical and flying, you know, arms flailing everywhere. And she's the same thing, but like the other side of that coin. So, yeah. And the Diane Weiss character did get lost in the shuffle for me until they made it to the house. Mm-hmm. And that's where I feel like the character really got her chance to shine, you know, making all of these vapid remarks about, 
the the antique books and uh, just she goes right to the the materialism mm -hmm. and, and the things that quote unquote you're supposed to say at parties yes and, and and all of that stuff i feel like up until that moment though she is sort of just making sure that like gene hackman's bib is on straight <laughs> that's such a good way to put that because you're right like she is making sure that while Hackman is obsessed with his image, she's making sure his image actually looks right. Because he's yeah, too, exactly. he's too busy trying to think of so many other things. And she's like, no, hold on. You know, she's the she's the mom that would lick the napkin and wipe the stuff off of your face. That's that's who Louise is. And you're right. You know, she she Amy's got a good point. She's supposed to be that way. She's supposed to be that doesn't speak till she's spoken to. And you you yep. mentioning saying all the right things at a dinner party. Like it's perfect. But then as soon as Kevin and Louise are separated from the rest of them for a moment, and you've got, here is this blatantly somebody pulling the wool over Kevin's eyes, and he's falling for everything about Mother Coleman. Just hook, line, and sinker. And then you've got Louise, who's like, I don't think something's right here, and kind of calling him out on it and being like, why, why are you so obsessed with this woman? And now she believes that it's Mother Coleman. She's not she's not seeing through the ruse so much as she's like questioning why he is falling for it so so much. And I don't know. She you're right in that she does get lost a little bit. Like I say, it's just hard to stand out in this crowd because Louise is such a subdued character, and you've got loud and obnoxious Albert, and you've got can be very loud and obnoxious Armand. And Gene Hackman is one of the great yellers in all of Hollywood, and he can get loud when he oh, needs yeah. to. Um, but, yeah. And I did want to mention, we have in this cast four Oscar winners and five Oscar nominees. So Robin Williams won an Oscar for Goodwill Hunting. He was also nominated three other times for uh, Best Actor before finally winning for Supporting Actor. Uh, Gene Hackman has won two Oscars. Uh, he won for um, uh, The French Connection and then Unforgiven in 92. And um, Diane Weiss, uh, Weiss also won two Oscars and was nominated a third time. But the other two are not who you would think. Um, Dan Futterman, Val, was nominated for an Oscar twice for writing. Oh, for writing. Okay. Yeah. You were about to really <laughs> blow my socks off there for a second. Okay. So he was nominated in 2006 for the best adapted screenplay for Capote. And then in 2000. Oh, wow. Yeah. And then uh, in 2015, he was nominated for best original screenplay uh, with Emacs Fry for Foxcatcher. So he has two. <sighs> two. Scripts wow. There. And then here's the other one. This is our fourth uh, Oscar winner in the cast. And again, it's not somebody you're going to think of. And it's also not for acting. Um, but he was nominated in 2006 for Best Picture and Best Original Screenplay for Good Night and Good Luck. He was nominated in 2012 for Best Adapted Screenplay for The Ides of March, and he won Best Picture as a producer in 2012, uh, 2013 for Argo. Grant Heslov, the photographer. Sure. And I always like to bring up uh, Grant Heslov when you see him in something as an actor and be like, that's an Academy Award winner right there. Uh, when I watched Dante's Peak for this show, I had not seen it before. And he's the coffee guy in that movie, talking about coffee all the time. And I'm like, 
Oh, that's right. He won an Oscar. <laughs> so that's that's crazy. Yeah, he had a hell of a mid '90s run just being in movies. Just having before. parts like the photographer in this movie, like these little tiny parts where he just shows up in something. Um, yeah, or the or the guy who says that I'll tell them nobody was here when you, Chris Farley, burned this recre- <laughs> recreational center down yes. on accident. Yeah. <laughs> I forgot about that. Oh, man. But, you know, that's the strength, though, I think, of a movie like this. And Mike Nichols, we haven't talked about enough as a director. Um, he brings something. I can't put my finger on what it is. I don't love all of his movies, necessarily. Like, I can't. Oh, he also um, uh, was an uh, Oscar winner. Sorry, for Best Director, Graduate. Sure. Um, but uh, with with Mike Nichols, like... I can't say that I love all his movies, but man, when he makes a good, when he makes a movie that I like, boy, do I like it. And this is one of those. Um, he just, he has this ability. I think you touched on it early on in the, in our conversation tonight, which was he had this way of kind of reining in somebody like a Robin Williams and, and bringing this idea and that trivia bit of, look, you got to do one good take of what's on the page. Then you can uh, improvise. Is brilliant. Because it forces through constraints, it creates more creativity than for Robin Williams and Nathan Lane. Because they can, he can say, great, we've got the take I want. Now you guys go ahead and have fun. And I'd be curious to know what takes got used that were improv versus what was written on the page. Absolutely. Um, but yeah, sad, I, another one of his, uh, Charlie Wilson's War was Mike Nichols. That was 2007. That's a really good movie. That's a movie that's better than people think um primary colors um you know he he's done some good movies but man it just the 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 technical craft that went into kind of creating this movie and i don't mean from necessarily just a like a cinematography although the opening shot of this movie is awesome talk talk on it because that opening shot is it's such a great, I love long takes and I love inventive cinematography and this to go from a helicopter shot to a crane shot to a steady cam and make it look like one smooth shot. Like these days you could pull that off with a drone and you could, you could probably make recreate that same style of shot in a much easier fashion and probably do it in a, in a single take. Although all the staging for it would be a nightmare. But that shot is so great because I defy you to find to notice where the where the interchanges are. They they cut that together so well, and I can't imagine trying to figure out how to match the speed of the crane coming down with the helicopter moving in. That had to have been just a logistical nightmare. But man, does it look cool! And what a great way to open your movie to have you know this helicopter shot into a crane coming down on the street, and then. And then it, it switches over from the crane shot to uh, the Steadicam operator. Because I think what I read was that the crane had a Steadicam operator sitting on it. So it brought them down, and then he stepped off of that and went to the door. And then it's another shot from inside the club that was shot on a soundstage. And then it's that long, mm-hmm. winding kind of Copacabana shot. Um, right. So good. So good. Such a great way to kick off your movie and, and it's visually interesting and get you invested in the movie right away without a it's single great. line of dialogue. Yeah. It, it, it's one of those things. I, I can't profess to know very much about 
the cinematography aspect of filmmaking. And sometimes I do feel like movies get credit just for doing that kind of athletic filmmaking of, you know, tell me where the cut is kind of stuff with, with movies like this though, like the Copacabana reference is perfect. Like, you know, the opening of Boogie Nights, the opening Mm -hmm. of this movie, it's just a great way to introduce you to everybody that this movie is going to be about. And both this and Boogie Nights feature opening songs that I wouldn't necessarily love just on their own, but fit so perfectly with what the movie is doing. Like we are family has been in my head all day. (laughs) And that's not, that's not a song that I'm necessarily firing up on Spotify. Right. But it's, it's, it's just it's the perfect choice to, mm-hmm. to, to start and conclude this story yeah it really really is and i like that the story starts and ends in the club too because mm-hmm. that's really the only time we see the club is the beginning of the movie and the end of the movie the rest of the time it's referenced as being below them and you hear it but you don't really see it but i like that we start there and then it comes full circle and we end there and it's the club that gets It's this drag club that gets the conservative senator and his wife and his daughter out through past all the press that are just waiting there to pounce on them. Uh, And and I love that. Like, it's just so good. Um, Yeah. And when I say, like, I defy you to find the cuts in that shot, like, just watching it, it feels like a single continuous shot. But what I like about it is what it sets up, what it creates. And it's it's Mm -hmm. visually interesting to draw you in. And then from there, it's it's very much just shot like a standard kind of comedy, um, which is exactly how it should be done. Uh, but I, I love even some of the framings of stuff that they did where, you know, you have a shot that uh, as everybody's moving stuff around, just, I, I don't know, it, it's hard to, it's hard to talk about like individual shots in the movie because it's not that type of movie. But then you'll see something where it's, uh, you know, Agador and he's, uh, He's sweeping out by the um, the pool or something. And it's just like, that's a mm-hmm. cool-looking shot. I did, however, the other one that I did want to touch on that I thought was really cool was when... So Val comes down. It's the scene where um, Albert is practicing with uh, the dancer who's chewing gum, which also had some great lines. You know, the whole chewing gum helps me think, sweetie, you're wasting your gum. Um, <laughs> yeah. When uh, the shot at the towards the end of it where... Here's, you know, Armand is explaining all this stuff to the dancer and he's giving him all this direction and it's very high energy and all this stuff's going on. We don't see any of that. We're hearing it while the camera's following Val moving around behind everything and then stopping at one point to look again and give one last look before he leaves the the frame. There's something about the way that shot was where it's that that dichotomy between what we're hearing and then what we're seeing and what, what should we be focused on that? I just something about that stuck with me, especially on this watching that I really liked. I'm like, well, that's kind of an interesting shot to throw in there. Like, why would you do that? But it worked. It made me think about that moment more because you're watching, you're watching all the emotion go through Val as he's like, I got to talk to him about this. I, this is a nightmare. And then you've got Armand trying to, you know, keep his show going and keep Albert happy. And it was just, I I liked, I very much enjoyed that moment. 
Yeah, uh, there's there's another one. It's not it's not a shot per se, but maybe it's in a, a similar spirit to the kind of thing you're talking about, which is just the way that the dinner is staged, where you have this. It, it, it's surrounded by dark and and kind of bland curtains that just cause you to basically just not pay attention to it in a Mm -hmm. way that Gene Hackman and Calista Flockhart and Diane Weist also aren't paying attention to it. And it, but it's also that kind of, Oh, if you only knew what was behind this curtain, (laughs) it's like when they, when they, you know, when they kind of, I don't know, throw a curtain over Madison square garden or something to make the crowd that's actually there look bigger. It's oh yeah, the, the same kind of trick, but it's like really effective and it really hammers home. Like for me, the single funniest part in this movie, besides all the great lines and and the great writing, is just Gene Hackman's face when he has to literally have his hand held as he is slowly given an explanation that this is what a gay living situation looks like like that that, yes that that like 30 second look on his face where it's slowly dawning on him what this is is just priceless so (laughs) there are that is one of those moments it's interesting because this movie is full of brilliant brilliant lines of comedy just jokes that that hit so well but there are also two or three or four brilliant moments of just physical reactions facial reactions to something that are as funny if not funnier than anything else that is one of them gene hackman's reactions is the slow realization but he just he can't he can't process it He's just like he's short circuited and he's his brain is resetting in that moment. Um, when Albert first comes out in the Mother Coleman look, uh, the uh, the cut it cuts away to Robin Williams and so you see Armand and Val, and the look on on Armand's face is priceless. He's just like, "What is happening right now?" I, he cannot believe what he is seeing, and but he's trying to hold it together. It's so good. Um, I love those moments. And and the other one, for me, it, it's not so much that it was a line of dialogue, but it's you can tell. So when Robin Williams slips in the uh, kitchen, uh, when he grabs the pot and he's he's on his way out and he slips and falls, that wasn't a, a pratfall uh, that was written into the script. He just fell. And they kept going, and you can tell they're all like on the verge of breaking, but they somehow held it together long enough to get that take. And that's another one of those moments where it's like it's not a specific line of dialogue, but it's just this physical moment of humor that just works so well. It's just it, and it's this building tension of of humor to get released in that way. Is I love it. Totally, I feel like that. I feel like that's happened to Hank Azaria in more than one movie. <laughs> where an actor has caused him to nearly quit on camera. <laughs> like if, if you're, I don't know if you're a huge heat fan, but oh, like Al, yeah, yes. Al Pacino, like basically makes him like hands him his walking papers 
in heat when you know the whole she's got a great ass scene like his face in that where he's legitimately shocked that we're going way off menu here Mm -hmm. yeah i I don't know maybe maybe there's just something about hank azaria that like it it just it just brought the thunder it just brought the comedy magic in that stretch in the 90s where you know he was if he was on your set like magic was going to happen one way or the other definitely and i do like the the story that he was working on heat now this is trivia so a little bit of grain of salt but i'll buy it uh when it was his 30th birthday he had been working on heat until like six o'clock in the morning and he was working on this movie at the same time so he goes to this set and mike nichols found out it was his birthday and he's like go home (laughs) what are you doing here so but nice but i can I can absolutely see Hank Azaria doing that because he just seems like that kind of a, a performer. Like he's, I'm, I'm in this thing. I'm going to show up. I'm going to do it because he brings it. He always brings a hundred percent everything he's in. He dives into it. So he's just brilliant in this movie too. He is so funny. He's so the uh, he's so funny. He he almost steals the movie for me. <laughs> and this is a movie that features Nathan Lane blowing people off the screen as well so that's not a small statement but every agador moment is is incredible like to say yeah i need to reiterate that to say that hank azaria almost steals this movie this movie starring robin williams nathan lane and gene hackman and hank azaria nearly steals the movie from them is saying a lot because just it really is every moment with agador uh right down to like the change in his voice when he goes to be Spartacus and the, the way he way overpronounces everything. It's so ridiculous, but funny. So funny. Oh, I just love that. And like I say, uh, you know, Diane Weist gets lost a little bit, but she has her moments to shine. Nathan Lane. I just can't say enough about Nathan Lane in, in this movie. He's so good. This was, so when I, whenever I watch a movie for the show, I always capture audio clips because I want to have something I can use for an intro at the top and stuff that I can put at the end of it and, and all that. I captured more clips of audio from this movie than any movie I've done out of the past 134 movies to, to date. So much so that in my soundboard, I had to put everything in folders. So I had to have folders of <laughs> just Nathan Lane sound and just Gene Hackman. And I'm going to play a few of these because they're too good not to. Um, First, I want to start with Gene Hackman because he had a line in this movie that sadly is probably more accurate today than it was when he said it in, the, in this movie in 96. And that was mm. this one. People in this country aren't interested in details. They don't even trust details. The only thing they trust is headlines. <sighs> that one jumped out to me when I heard it too. Like, <laughs> oh man, here we are. Yep. Uh, I liked... Uh, well, I mentioned this one earlier, but... Bessie Jackson is an insensitive cow. <laughs> That's a line delivered by Gene Hackman in a way only Gene Hackman can say it. I don't know what it is. There's something with his voice. Like he has... Gene Hackman to me is like a, a an older version of Sam Jackson where there are certain lines of dialogue. I talked about this last week when I was covering Pulp Fiction. There's certain lines of dialogue that you, you hear Sam Jackson say and you cannot hear them in another voice. Gene Hackman's like that, and that's one of them. Mm-hmm. Just the, the way he can say it. Here's the moment you mentioned, uh, 
because I had to capture that. It's such a perfect delivery of this line, too. They're Jewish. I don't understand. He's a man. They're both men. It can't be. You can't be Jewish. No. <laughs> it's that moment. Like, he's still... He's, he hasn't fully booted back up yet. He's like, wait a minute. No. 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 This can't be. <laughs> and that's such a great commentary on the difference between politicians getting in front of the camera or, or a bank of microphones and bloviating <sighs> about these issues that they know their constituents are relying on them to talk about mm-hmm. versus mm-hmm. actually just being face to face with it. It's like, dude, what do you know about gay culture? You None. literally couldn't even deduce this yeah. and you're still not deducing it even at the end of that line you're yep. still it, the wheels are turning so slowly <laughs> and i didn't capture it because it's way too long and it wouldn't make for a good audio bit but on some of the dovetail of that is a politician who can't really speak extemporaneously like without a, a written thing his story of their drive down from dc to florida going through the season changes. Kevin Keeley is such a terrible public speaker when he has to come up with something on the spot and he just drones on. And then you keep cutting over to Robin Williams and he, you can, you can see where Armand is like nearly falling asleep. He's zoning out, but because he wants to look like he's listening to what Keeley has to say. But at the same time, he's like, I would like to be anywhere else, but here right now, like if he could have chewed his own leg off to get away, he'd have done it. When I first saw that scene, I didn't I didn't get it at first. Like I was like, this is like a shaggy dog story that doesn't even have an interesting beginning. I'm like, what is what is the movie going for here? And then as he, as he goes on and on and on, it becomes clear that, oh, right. Like this dude doesn't say anything that is not easily digestible. He, his and, entire career is speaking in sound bites or prepared speeches and he just can't he can't do it on his own and it's so it's so well done i think is what what makes it work and it goes on so long <laughs> that it's like it's not funny at first and then it becomes funny and then it's not funny again and then it becomes funny again like <laughs> yes. that's a that's a hell of a cycle to, to bring a bit through and kind of trust that you're going to somehow get to the end of it. Yep. You know, coming out smelling better than you did at the beginning, <laughs> but Oh, that that's great stuff. Brilliant. <laughs> uh, I mean, I got a bunch of Agador stuff. I'm just going to play a few of them because they're, they're Oh, please do. You got Agador's left when Agador comes out to pour wine and he sees Albert, the reaction is priceless, and he just laughs. He just... <laughs> I, and I love capturing laughs, because you know that most of them are... like You can tell a moment, like what I mentioned earlier, where Robin Williams slips and falls, where that laughter is real, and it's genuine, and it's spontaneous, and then you can tell when it's like a, a contrived laugh, or they have to laugh for the scene. But I still love them. Like, I just... I love all of those. Uh, Pyrin tablets... What are you doing? Why? Why are you giving him drugs? What the hell are Purin tablets? He's aspirin with the A and the S scraped off. My God, what a brilliant idea. I know. I know. Uh, or, um, uh, 
Oh, his Spartacus voice. Good evening. Good evening. Uh, I never wear shoes because they make me fall down. And like, it's such a weird... We, at that point, we haven't seen him in anything but barefoot, but he says that, and then the next time we see him, as soon as he hits the hard, the hard part of the floor, whoop, down, right on his face. Like, such a great... Uh, I also noticed or realized watching this movie that there are a lot of lines from this movie that I just say randomly, like, uh, like oh, interesting. In, in conversation. So this, this is, this movie's kind of burrowed its way into your, your kind of references that the, yes. tell, tell me which ones. Uh, so I'm to hear this one, um, I will sometimes do the good evening like that. Although that could be any number of different references, uh, just like a, a funny pronunciation of that. Um, the purse one is. Um, may I take your purse as usual, or for the first time? All any time I take somebody's coat or or bag or purse, it's always <laughs> may I take that as usual or for the first time? Because <laughs> so dumb and so great. <laughs> or another moment where again Agador for being played for laughs throughout so much of the movie at the same time they then give him these moments where you realize, no, he's, he's totally on the ball and he's really smart is as he's coming over to pour more scotch for Senator Keeley and Keeley says, you know, I don't drink. Now is the time to pretend. Like now is the time to pretend. You know, I just love that. Uh, the Pyrrhon tablets we've done. I love, um, another one again, plays into it is Armand comes in, takes the coffee from him in the morning. By the way, the fact that they just have a stationary bike in the kitchen, and he's using he's he's not riding it. He just sits on it to read the newspaper. I thought it was hilarious. Yeah, like that's just, elite. Yeah, that's it's such a great that's such a good absurdist joke because it's so silly. But uh, he hands him the coffee and he drinks. It. He's like, "What is this sludge?" Yes, it's sludge. I thought I'd make a nice change from coffee. I use that one a lot too, all the time. That's another one. What that is like this say. sludge? <laughs> might be my favorite line reading in the movie. <laughs> This is the thing about this movie is that everybody has the moment where they kind of take the movie away for a second. And, mm-hmm. and the way that Robin Williams delivers that <laughs> is, is so wonderful. It, it's so oh. that that like, uh, yeah, I, I won't even elaborate. It's perfect. <laughs> oh, uh, and then this one from Agador. Such a beat to everybody. Yeah. Just uh and then okay, let's see. So there's Hank Azaria. Um I did get Somebody has to like me best. Cause you have to. Uh I also I love this exchange early on between um Louise and Barbara. Oh, is that like Palm Beach? It's close. <laughs> Cause the look on Callista Flockhart's <laughs> delivery of that line in her look is great. It's just deer in the headlights. It's close. <laughs> Like, I'm not going to outright lie to you, but we're going to really, we're going to (laughs) really tiptoe around the edges of what this is here. Yeah. Uh, Obviously, Robin Williams stuff. um, Some of the ones that I use a lot are sweating like some sort of farm animal. I am a guy who sweats a lot anyway, so I use that constantly. That's that's a very, very normal thing for me. Also, I've never had so much go so wrong so quickly. Basically, any situation that goes wrong, you can use that. Um, so this is hell. And there's a crucifix in it. 
another one of those yeah. brilliant deliveries. Um, or that went well. <laughs> Shouldn't you be holding the crucifix? It is the prop for martyrs. That is a very like I feel like that was a an improv. Like that one, the you're going to the cemetery with your toothbrush. How Egyptian! That feels also like a very Robin Williams type of joke. Um, yeah, I can see that in, in that it doesn't totally make sense, but it's still <laughs> funny. Yes, uh, the scene in the cafe um, where he decides he's going to teach Albert how to act more masculine is brilliant. And the, the rumor is that they had to put a sound blanket over Mike Nichols while he was directing that scene. Cause he was laughing so much. And I want that to be true. Like I want, I want to, it to be true that they just broke their director in, in the, the director is what screwed up take after take. Yeah. Because that that's would so be brilliant. Phenomenal. But between the toast and between having, uh, Albert walk at like John Wayne. And then the reaction is just actually it's perfect. I just never realized John Wayne walked like that. <laughs> what uh, a dagger. Oh, yes. Um, another one I like to use a lot when something is weird or doesn't make any sense. It's like riding a psychotic horse towards a burning stable. <laughs> That's another one. It doesn't really, it doesn't make no. sense, but at the same time, you just kind of know right. exactly what he's saying. Yeah. Um. Oh, and, and one more. Uh, oh, nope, sorry, two more. Agador, Spartacus! Agador, Spartacus. He insists on being called by his full name. <laughs> they, make, they make that one, and finally talk, talking about uh, Albert. And he's driving back from Miami at 20 miles an hour with the parking brake on. <laughs> but we can't play clips from this movie without Nathan Lane. Okay, Nathan Lane, again... Steals this movie. Uh, That's all I am to you, isn't it? A meal ticket. The gum, the gum joke I did enjoy. He's chewing gum. Chewing gum helps me think. Sweetie, you're wasting your gum. And then they go back to it right away. I don't think I get it. Try more gum. Albert. <laughs> He's so snarky in that moment. Um, oh, let's I also see. like when he calls those chocolate samples a triumph oh yes now i didn't get that part where he calls him a triumph but when the schnecken beckons you know when the schnecken beckons <laughs> um his reactions every time he would try to act masculine for armand and he would come back and and just you know armand's just staring at him and he his reactions are always like too swishy <laughs> just like that you just immediately break too swishy um Again, I'm just a guy. <laughs> I love that. <laughs> uh, let's see. Two, three more. I got three more clips of Albert. I got to play these uh, because this is another one of those brilliant deliveries. Kevin, Kevin, nothing's changed. It's still me with one tiny difference. Well, not tiny. <laughs> Uh, his laugh. <laughs> yeah. I, do you feel me? Do you feel me on the Amadeus thing? Yes, there, absolutely. I, I feel like that's so of the same DNA. 
It definitely is. It definitely, if that wasn't an inspiration for that laugh, I don't, I don't know what was because that, that I totally get that. Okay. And this one's a little bit longer, but I have to, this is a supercut of Albert in this movie, just shrieking because <laughs> I counted it. This was 15 different clips of him shrieking in this movie. And they're so funny. And it's even funnier played this way. You Oh, Nathan Lane, you're amazing. I kept a straight face for like the first three. <laughs> well, you know, you, you can only keep a straight face for so long. And then that happens <laughs> and it breaks even the director. So that does have some big Miss Piggy vibes in there. I, I would get behind that in a heartbeat. Um, that's true. The, honestly, if you haven't seen the birdcage yet, go watch it. It's, it's on HBO max. So if you have HBO max, you can watch it right away. I adore this movie and I don't watch it often enough. I need to watch it more often, but I'm, I'm so glad that you enjoyed it too. And in, again, you saw some things that even like I hadn't thought of until you mentioned them. And that's that's part of what I love about these conversations is that you can bring something to it and you can see it through a different set of eyes and it makes me think about it and then I can jump on that and, and really just, I just love that. So that's really, really cool. I'm glad that you enjoyed the movie. Yeah, definitely. And and as it is kind of similar to your Mike Nichols take, like I, I'm almost entirely unfamiliar with, with Mike Nichols's filmography in terms of what I've seen. The only other one that I have seen, I did not like. Um, and, and with the birdcage, I almost don't want to spoil <laughs> the sterling reputation that he has in my head right now after seeing it by, by watching something like, you know, whatever it is, Charlie Wilson's war. I mean, you said that was, you know, serviceable or, or whatever, but th this movie, I, I expected the comedy mm -hmm. and I expected some cultural commentary. Um, I, I did not expect to be as moved as I was watching it. And mm -hmm. I, this movie really doesn't, I, I don't, I, I mean, anyone who has who has listened to you know our, our podcast or, or my pod knows that like i love i love to nitpick i love to you know have a powwow about what i liked what i didn't like about a particular movie with this one i really don't have very many negative things to say about it if any at all it, it is such a, a a unique movie and the humor holds up at least mm -hmm. for me and is it instantly my favorite movie of all time no it's not but i will definitely kind of give people a nudge in the future like mm -hmm. yeah. hey man this is worth your time if you haven't seen it 
Well, I think what it comes down to with a movie like this is it holds up the humor because the humor isn't mean-spirited, and so that helps it to be timeless. The The feeling of the movie is somewhat timeless because it doesn't date itself with references, and it doesn't date itself with some of... Right. There's a couple yeah. of things, like the cell phone that the National Enquirer guy has is a, you know... Uh, definitely a 90s cell phone like there's a couple of things but on the whole it doesn't but i think also it's just it's great performances um and it's great work from everybody in it and and that goes a long way um to making a movie that that's a ton of fun to watch and you know maybe you just don't ever watch another mike nichols movie and and this can remain great for you uh, and he doesn't his reputation doesn't need to be sullied for you uh, i wouldn't wouldn't fault that at all because you know I've only seen I've seen The Graduate I've seen uh Charlie Wilson's War and I've seen Primary Colors but I haven't seen Wolf um I haven't seen Working Girl Bloxy Blues he's got a, a weird uh kind of track record where it's like he worked for a while and then just sort of after 2007 stopped so yeah that that is what it is and, um, and I think go ahead oh go ahead Nope. No, I, just just to sum up, like, I think the perfect encapsulation of what you're saying about the jokes and the humor is in that cafe scene where they are you know, practicing being manly mm-hmm. it, because in it, it's so funny, but it, it also sets up the, the payoff toward the end where it's like the answer to your question or, or your worries or your deep concerns about appearances was right in front of your face the whole time. Who's going to be better at being a woman than this dude? Right. Yes. And that's, that is what makes crystal clear. This movie's not making fun of Albert. Mm-hmm. It's just putting him in this situation where he might seem like he's the butt of the joke, but then it pays off later when you realize like, no, this, this was actually the perfect guy for the job. Yep. You just had to change the color of the lens that you were looking at it through. Yes. He was perfect for the job. You were looking at the job wrong. Right. Fit the person, fit the actor or fit the person to the role, not the role to the person, which is what they were trying to do. So yeah, that's a perfect way to put that. I think too, what helps this movie is, it has heart to it, but it never feels preachy. Like even that heartfelt moment where they're sitting on the bench doesn't feel preachy to me. Like it's not, it's not, it's set up to be the, here's the emotional moment, but it feels genuine in that moment. And it feels earned that, that exchange between Armand and Albert feels earned in the story that they've been telling. It doesn't feel like we're stepping out of the movie to say, now here's the moment where you're going to feel stuff. And then we'll go back to the zaniness. It's like, it fits in the world that they've built. So that helps a lot, I think, too, with the, the movie, the way the, the movie ages and the way that uh, it's still enjoyable to watch 25 years later. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I want to say thank you, Marcus, for coming on tonight and talking with me about this movie. This was a ton of fun. You're welcome back anytime if you got any other movies you want to you want to talk about. It sounds like, I mean, obviously you do a show very similar to this one, so you know what it's like to, to come on and talk about uh, other movies. Where can people find your show uh, and where you are online? So there's a few different ways you can find us. Uh, the Mothership site is haven'tseenitpod.podbean.com. Uh, we're also on Spotify, 
and um, can be found on our uh, Twitter page at, at @hsipod. Uh, so, looking at um, possibly expanding, finding new platforms. Uh, but right now, that's where you can find us. We put out new episodes every Monday. And thank you for having me on, man. I had a really good time talking Absolutely. about Absolutely. Absolutely. And I can call my lawyers tomorrow and tell them not to send the cease and desist. We don't need oh, to do well, that thanks, now. We're, we're all good. <laughs> no, I love it. I love, other, I love other shows doing a similar thing because I don't have the only voice in this. And I don't have, I certainly didn't come up with the idea for it. So I was kind of excited to have you on to have another person who has that similar idea and, and see how that goes. And this was a ton of fun. So thank you. Thank you. Thank you for coming on. And definitely folks give, give the podcast a listen to haven't seen it. Pod dot podbean.com. Check that out. Um, now next week we are beginning October and uh, October means scary movies. And like I do every year, we kind of have some categories. Uh, this year I am starting off uh, with the monster movie for for my Halloween month, uh, we are going to watch The Host, which is from 2007, directed by Bong Joon-ho. Um, I have seen it before. I love this movie. This is a great monster movie. Um, I'm going to have on uh, Monica Stone from uh, Hearthstone. She's got a couple of Hearthstone podcasts. She was on last October um, as well, uh, and uh, our own Phelan in the chat is going to be a, a guest and Monica's never seen The Host, so I can't wait to, to show her this one because she likes horror movies. So I'm curious what she'll think of this monster movie. Uh, have you ever seen The Host? I have not. It's a good one. It's a Korean monster movie about this like river monster in a, in a town in Korea that gets uh, kind of created by some... It, it's kind of got the old school monster movie setup where it was created by like a uh, runoff into a river like toxic runoff, but it's got some layers to it. That's more than just a kooky monster movie. So it's pretty cool. Um, and I think it's still streaming on Hulu. So, um, it's definitely worth watching. We've got some other fun stuff, uh, for the rest of October, including a horror anthology. We're going to do a slasher movie. Uh, and we are ending things on Halloween night with the Rocky horror picture show. I get to show somebody that movie for the first time ever. And I'm, very interested to see what they think of it. So until next week and the host, uh, I want to say once again, thank you, Marcus, for coming on. This has been wonderful. Welcome back anytime. And to all of you out there listening, enjoy your movies. And, you know, the world itself is uh, we're, we're slowly getting back out. So like what you like, enjoy your stuff and be excellent to each other. Yes, it is. It is a huevo. <laughs> this is so Guatemala. They put hard-boiled eggs in everything down there because, you know, chicken is so important to them. It's their only real currency. A woman is said to be worth her weight in hens, and a man's wealth is measured by the size of his cock. Will you excuse me? 
Diamond Club hopes you have enjoyed this program. <laughs>